Hello, and welcome to the Church on the Hill podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to join us live this Sunday at 500 Sands Drive in San Jose, California. Visit churchonthehill.com for service times and directions, and also to learn more about connecting, growing, and serving at Church on the Hill. Now let's join lead pastor Scott Simarok as he teaches at Church on the Hill. We've been in this series in Revelation, so I want you to open your Bibles. If you're not familiar with the Bible, I want you to open the Bible that's in the chair in front of you. There's a little black book there. Open it up. We're in this book called Revelation. Um, the very last book of the entire Bible. You'll, you'll find it. Open it up, and I'll let you know why I want you to be have it open in just a minute. But Revelation chapter 2. But this morning, I want to start by telling you the story of a church. Uh, It was a church from the 1950s. Uh, It began in the 1950s in Indianapolis, Indiana. It was the the People's Temple Full Gospel Church. Pastor Jim, he was a charismatic man, taught the Word of God, led people. And the, the thing that was so attractive about that church is in the 1950s, when our nation was embroiled in this race controversy, in what equality looked like, not that we haven't been embroiled in that in the recent past or even today, but in the 1950s, I mean, it, it, it was a different kind of nation back then. And they came in and said this, whatever ethnic background, whatever financial class background that you are in, you are always welcome here. And this is a place of, of equality. And, and so that gathered people around him. Um, they, they were looking to actually expand the church. They decided they were going to move to Ukiah, California. But he kind of made this odd Because Pastor Jim made this prediction by July 15th of the year 1967 that the world would be involved in a nuclear conflict. And for the church's safety, they would need to move to Ukiah, California. I don't know why Ukiah is safer than Indianapolis. I don't know. But they made that move, and it just seemed kind of odd. The associate pastor of the church, his name was Russell Winberg, he spoke up. He spoke up against Pastor Jim. And he said, you know, his messages are getting weird, people. He's actually moving away from the central teachings of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he was concerned, but it didn't stop 140 families who followed Pastor Jim to California. Now, when they were in California, they started expanding even more. They had multiple locations. They even opened up a church right up the road here in San Francisco. And during the 1970s, this church did some amazingly good social work. They they had nine residential care facilities for the elderly. They had six foster homes for kids. They had a 40-acre property for disabled persons. Their food pantry to their church fed more people in San Francisco than any other church. They had an addiction recovery program where people were being freed from their drug addiction. They received all kinds of civic awards from politicians like Jerry Brown, Walter Mondale. At the height of the church, they claimed to have more than 20,000 members. People in all reality were saying, it's more like 3,000 to 5,000 people. But there's this thing that Pastor Jim would do every now and then. He would take his, his Bible, mine's brown, his was black, And the story goes that he would take his Bible and he would throw it on the ground. And he would look at his people and he said, listen, that black book has been holding you back. For someone who teaches the Bible, that's weird. 
And on other occasions, he would take this Bible and he would throw it down. And he would say, listen, I know what it means. And I now am your God. Whoa. What looked like a church had become something entirely different. Pastor Jim, if you know where this story's going, and the People's Temple, that was originally known as the People's Temple of the Full Gospel, and Pastor Jim Jones moved almost a 1,000 people down to Guyana in South America. And that's where the tragic end of this story goes, where 900 people committed mass suicide at the instructions of Pastor Jim Jones. How does a church go that sideways? And you say, well, it must have been bad from the very beginning. But they did a lot of good works. I tell you that story because we're about to read about another story of a church that was about to go sideways in their teachings. We're in this series called The Resilient Church, The Seven Letters from Jesus. And it's all from Revelations chapter 1 through 3. And in there, Jesus gives John seven letters to give to seven churches. And when he does this, the assumption is that all seven churches will read all seven letters. But there's something unique going on in this church in Thyatira. Now, let me just review this. So each week, we're taking a letter to the church. Week one was this. It was the letter to the Ephesian church. And they were known as the unloving church. Do you remember this? He says, man, this is what your church does really well. You're fighting false teachings. You're fighting false teachings, but the problem with your church is this. You don't really love God anymore, and you don't really love the people around you. They were fighters, but they forgot that the cause of their life was to love God and love people. And then you get the church in Smyrna. They were the suffering church, and Jesus writes them a letter to say this. And there's actually no criticism of that church. He just says this. I want you to know that my power and my presence is with you, even though you suffer. And I remember preaching that that Sunday. I remember for a lot of you that you, you're, you're not in the midst of like a, a spiritual suffering where someone's persecuting you, like, the, the, like the Rome was persecuting the church, but you're in your own world of suffering and struggle, and you needed to hear that God's presence and power is still with you. The third one was this, um, last week's was the church at Pergamum, and it's the compromising church. It wasn't just that they were compromising their theology, they were compromising their ethics. And Jesus gives them this invitation to return to him so that he could be their provider. If you missed it, go back, watch any of these messages. Today we come to Thyatira, and I'm going to call the church this. It's the permissive church. They're the permissive church because they were permissive about what people taught in their church. They were about to go sideways in their teaching. Um, like the people's temple, though, the teaching was just off slightly at the beginning. But pretty soon it was actually just totally against God's word. And what I find interesting is that the church in Ephesus and the church in Thyatira, they, they had the opposite problem. The church in Ephesus, they're like, don't come into our church and teach false things, man. We're, gonna, we're not going to tolerate anything like that. But they forgot to be loving towards God and towards people. This church in Thyatira, they were just a loving church. Loving people so much that they tolerated all kinds of false teaching. So here's what I want to do. Let's get right into the text. Revelation chapter 2, verse 18 reads like this. To the angel of the church at Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I'm going to come back to this verse 
at the end. What follows, though, is Jesus' description of the church. I'm going to label almost the entire message the permissive church. And my point number one, we're about to get to this. Point number one is this. The permissive church says yes to all kinds of good works. So if you're taking notes, there it is. The permissive church says yes to all kinds of good works. Here's what Jesus says. He compliments the church. Verse 19, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, that you're now doing more than you did at first. He gives them six compliments right off the bat. I know your deeds. Whenever Jesus says that to a church in Revelation 2 and 3, he's saying this, I know your good deeds. You're doing these amazing things. Congratulations. Thank you for doing such great things. Your love for people, oh, it's amazing. Your faith, your faith and belief that God can do anything in your midst, super strong. Your service to the community, generous. You have persevered, meaning you've gone through something tough. He doesn't say what it is, but you have persevered even though there's a struggle. The sixth one is you're not lazy. You're doing more now than you ever did before. Like you're a progressive church. (laughs) Sorry, that's a loaded word today, I guess. Maybe loaded in a right way because sometimes progressive is off. But he gives them these six compliments. Um, I want us to recognize this because of this. False churches... Churches that are on the slide theologically, that are about to go sideways, churches that are off in their teaching, there's some amazingly great things about them. A false church is never going to walk into community and be confrontational. They're going to be loving and build rapport with people. And then you're going to hear their teaching. And because they're such great people, you're not going to question what they're teaching, which brings this shift. Number two is this. The permissive church says nothing when they should have said no. If you're in your notes, the permissive church says nothing when they should have said no. And here's where I get this from. Verse 20. Nevertheless, Jesus is about to move from the compliment to the criticism. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate. You put up with. You permit this to happen in your church. And here's what it is. That woman Jezebel, you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. And by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now, I'm not going to get into this week the sexual immorality and the eating food sacrificed to idols. We talked about that last week. Go listen to that. That is about God's provision for his people and the desire for belonging. I'm not going to say any more about that. You can go listen to last week's teaching. Um, But this is his criticism. You've tolerated this. You said nothing when that one person spoke, and you should have said, no, 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 I don't think that's true. I don't think that agrees with the whole of Scripture. Now, question, was there actually a woman named Jezebel in their church? No. There wasn't. It's a typology. It's a reference back to the book of 1 Kings. And let me be super clear about this because there's been some Christians in the past who have wrongly taught this that was, you know, the problem was that there was just a woman there teaching. No. That isn't even close to the meaning of the text. The woman that he refers to, this typology, is found in 1 Kings chapter 18. Here's Jezebel's story. Just to recap this. 
The seventh king of Israel, the northern tribes, the ten tribes of Israel, his name was King Ahab. Let me describe to you, read from the scriptures about this description of King Ahab. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam and son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal as he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. He's a scoundrel. He's the king and he's leading the people astray. And King Ahab, he didn't understand, or maybe he did, that whoever you marry... Whoever comes into your household, whether you think you're more powerful than she is, she will bring with her a belief about God that could lead your family astray. And he marries this gal, Jezebel. She's the daughter of this king, and he probably married her for a political power move for a joint union between two kingdoms. But she was a special kind of monster. God brings a drought to the land because of all the evil practices. He's like, fine, you want to live without me? Let me show you what a drought can do on the land. And if you're familiar with this story, um, it, there's this showdown between the prophet Elijah, God's true prophet, and these 450 prophets of Baal, the God of Jezebel. And the this, this story goes that each of them builds these altars and sacrifices an animal on the altar. And the contest is this, which God can burn up the sacrifice without matches, with prayer alone. And you know how the story goes, right? I mean, the, the Baal gods, they dance around their, their sacrifice, their altar for hours, and nothing ever happens. And then Elijah, he douses his, his sacrifice with water, and then the, he prays, and God just destroys everything. 450 prophets of Baal are killed that day. Elijah and his God, the God of the Old and the New Testament, is victor that day, and the power of God is made known. And Jezebel makes a promise that day that she will find Elijah and she will have him put to death. There's another story that actually follows that story in the scriptures. And her husband, King Ahab, he wanted to get this one guy's property because it was a great vineyard. And so he goes and asks this guy, I, I want your land. I want to buy it from you. And uh, I, I want that. I'm, I'm the king, so you shouldn't tell me no. And the guy tells him, no, like this is my family's inheritance. I'll never give it to you. He goes home and he cries. <laughs> he won't give me the land. And Jezebel's like, why are you crying? Well, this guy, I want his land and he won't give it to me. So she orchestrates the man's death and gets the land for her husband. See, she's a particular kind of monster. So apparently when... When in Revelation chapter 2, it says, you tolerate the teaching of this woman, Jezebel. There's no woman in the church named Jezebel. It's a reference to this false teacher. Apparently in Thyatira, there's this woman who doesn't agree with what the scripture says, and she's in the church. And they tolerate her teaching. Why? I don't know. It doesn't say. Maybe they don't think it's that bad. Well, she's a little off. Maybe they don't want to hurt her feelings. You know what? It's really important that we love her. And if we say something against her, maybe she won't feel loved. 
Maybe they're actually afraid of her. No, I'm not saying anything against her, man. She's just powerful and wicked. Maybe they just want to focus on all the good parts of the church. Like, look at all the good things we're doing. Let's not raise a ruckus. It might get in the way of all the good that we're doing. Whatever reason, they've tolerated a person teaching something that is false, and Jesus is criticizing them. I gave you a chance. You all heard this. You should have said something, or you should have said no, but you said nothing. You just tolerated it. Um, Let me say this as a point of application to us. At Church on the Hill, every Sunday I say this, hey, would you open your Bibles? Why? I don't want you to assume that what I'm putting on the screen is the actual text from the Bible. I mean, I'm just curious, like, if I wanted to lead this church astray, I don't, Lord. But how long would it take for you to catch me? Because I'm putting the words on the screen, and you're like, oh, yeah, I can make it sound really nice, but it's not actually from the Bible. There's this really cool video thing called the Song of Solomon or Songs of Justin Bieber. And it's just lines, and you have to guess. Like, is that a line from Justin Bieber or a line from the Song of Solomon? Look it up. Just, yeah, play it in your community group sometime. See how many you get wrong. Why do I tell you that? Well, I want you to open your Bibles. I don't want you to take my word for it. We want you to be an educated follower of Christ so that if someone says something that's off, you're like, what? Now, as a church... Here's my strong recommendation to you. If you hear something from me that is off or anyone teaching from this church that is off or in your community group and someone says something that is off and you're like, I'm not going to sit silent. Ask a question, okay? Don't come at me, guns a-blazing like, hey, Pastor Heretical, uh, I got a question for you. Um, No, just ask a question. Hey, when you said this, what did you mean by that? Help me understand more of that. In your community group, it's okay to ask questions, we don't want to just blow people up. We certainly don't want to bow to the cancel culture that's out there and right away start blowing people up socially, right? But ask questions. What did you mean by that? Listen, I want you to ask great questions. I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to read the Bible. That's why when people come be a part of our church, we teach them what's called the SOAP method, scripture, observation, application, and prayer. We want to teach you how to read the scriptures because the majority of what is written in here in God's word, it's pretty straightforward and and you can understand it for yourself. Not only that, but listen, if there's something you don't understand, there are so many ways online to find the answers to your questions. Now, granted, there's some crazy websites out there that'll teach you some crazy things, but there's also some great easy, you can Google stuff. And find biblical answers for some things. At times, be careful. I want you to be informed on these things. Because I want your lives to be educated. So that you're truly following the Christ of the scriptures. Let's get back to Revelation. I can't go too far on this. This permissive church. The third thing is this. The permissive church mistakes God's patience for his approval. Listen to what he does with the Jezebel person. He says, I have given her time, verse 21, I've given her time to repent of her her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead, and then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. (laughs) That's a little terrifying, right? Um, 
some churches, they appear great on the outside, and they don't actually reveal the brokenness that is going on on the inside. Do you remember all the compliments that Jesus gave that church? The six things. Oh, you're doing all of these things amazingly well. But there's this Jezebel in your midst that's leading the church astray. We can actually mistake the good parts of a church, their success, their accomplishments, for actually God's approval. You know, we think maybe God's blessing is on the biggest churches in town. And surely the smallest churches have things wrong with them and their teaching. Can I just say it's not the truth? The size of the church is not the blessing of God. I want to say, well, who's bringing people to Christ? Yeah, I think that is a blessing of God. Who's baptizing people in the name of Jesus? I think that is a blessing of God. But let's not... Let's not mistake God's patience, putting up with something in a church so that that person has time to repent for God's approval of what they're teaching. Are you with me on that? Now, quick question, which is a super important question. Does God mean this literally? Is Jesus like, I'm going to lay out Jezebel and she's going to suffer. I'm going to kill her kids. I actually think that this is not literal. I think this is figurative language because of this. When he refers to this committing adultery, I don't think people are actually committing adultery with her. The committing of adultery is often a term used in Scripture to describe when people are cheating on God. You're cheating on your loyalty to God. You're cheating on your faithfulness to God, your relationship with God, by following this woman and her false teaching. And so because that's figurative, I believe he's saying this, that yes, something is going to happen to Jezebel. It will not be pleasant. I don't think he's saying necessarily, I'm going to send her to the hospital. I certainly don't think he's saying, I'm going to kill her kids. I think what he's saying is figuratively, I'm going to kill the movement. I'm going to purify my church. I'm not going to allow her dominating rule of falsehood to continue. And then at this moment, Jesus switches gears altogether. He gets to this next point, this permissive church, number four. The permissive church chases novelty for easy solutions rather than dig into the depths of the ancient pure gospel. And this is where I get this from. Look at verse 24. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, so the audience has changed. He's not talking about this Jezebel anymore. I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called, you can underline this, deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. There's this teaching in the first couple centuries of the, the church called Gnosticism. The word gnosis is the Greek word for knowledge. Gnosticism was this. I, I, I know you have Jesus, and I know you have the story of his death and his resurrection, his teaching and his miracles, but listen, the true Christian faith, the true way to God, there's actually a secret, deeper gnosis, experience or knowledge. It's this word that said, listen, you need to have this spiritual experience or this spiritual knowledge in really in order to be saved. They're stepping outside what Jesus gave them to say, you know what? Above and beyond the Bible, above and beyond Jesus, you need this. And it's often an experience or some kind of secret knowledge. Um, 
I will tell you this. Uh, whenever there is a religion that has a secret teaching, a deeper knowledge, particularly that only certain people have and can translate to you, can I just say this? It's a false religion. And you might be wondering, like, how could people fall for the people's temple? I mean, how could people fall for a Jezebel type being in a church? I mean, you would know it right away. No one would follow that, right? There's no application for this today. Listen to this. In 2005, the Berkeley Repertory Theater, they put on a play called The People's Temple. And it was after three years worth of research that the person writing this collected so much data. They interviewed the survivors from the People's Temple those that were still in San Francisco, that were still around the world connected to the church, and just did these interviews and asked them, why, how, tell me your story. They collected all of this, and they wrote this play to make this one point. The people in the church were just like you and me. They were just regular people wanting to go to a church that taught about hope and life and gave them a connection to God. And somewhere in the midst of it, it went sideways. But they were so deeply embedded in it at the moment that they weren't able to say no, that they weren't able to stop it, they weren't able to walk away. The point of that whole play was this. If we don't learn from the past, Revelation chapter 2, if we don't learn from the past, the people's temple, those things can be repeated today, right here in this church. Um, two months ago, after church in the lobby, I'm shaking hands, saying hi to people, seeing how things are going, and these two young gals come up to me, and they say, Pastor, we would like to invite you to this, this banquet. I was like, thanks. What's it about? Well, it's churches in the Bay Area that they're going to gather, the pastors are going to gather together for unity, and to show a strong united front and to hear from some of the teachings of one of the pastors. And it, it are, it's put on by our church. And I said, oh, that's interesting. I don't typically go to these kind of things, but all right, let, let me hear about it. Where's your church from? Well, it's a church in San Francisco. What's the name of the church? Oh, it's a, it's a new church. Well, that's great. Does it have a name? Does it have a pastor? And they changed the subject. My alarm bells are going off after... 30 years of pastoring and 20 years pastoring in the Bay Area, you know the questions to ask, and all of a sudden, my alarm's insiders going, whoop, whoop. They hand me this invitation. It was like four or five pages to this invitation. Um, so I, I say, well, thank you. I, I'll read through it. And uh, I never, didn't say I'd get back to you. I was just, I, I'll read through it, but thank you so much for that generous invitation. I put it on my desk, left it there for a while. <clears throat> Two weeks later, this is last week. They call up, and uh, this gal calls up and says, oh, is Pastor Scott able to come to, uh, to our banquet? And I was like, wow, this isn't going away. I should really read this invitation. So buried somewhere in page two of this invitation, I'm reading very carefully, and it says, New Heaven, New Earth Organization, and it's in capitals. And I was like, there's the distinguishing mark. I had to read through the fine print of this invitation. So you look up New Heaven, New Earth Church, it's connected to the Shin Cheonji Church, which is a cult 
disguised as a Christian church, and it comes from South Korea, and the pastor goes by Chairman Lee, who claims that he is the promised pastor of the New Testament, and only he is capable of deciphering the book of Revelation to tell you what it truly means. Whoop, sideways, warning bells, I'm out. I wasn't going to your banquet before, but surely I'm not now. So I told Janice, our our front office manager, I said, Janice, you just feel free if they call back to let them know that I'm not coming to their cult banquet. (laughs) The Lord bless you. Isn't it crazy, though, that things like this can happen still today? And they will invite you to say, well, why don't you come and join us and study the Bible with us? And listen, the two people who invited me to this, super, I mean, they're they're gals in like their their mid-20s. They were nice. They were kind. They want to unify the church. Anytime you get a leader who states that they hold the sole interpretation of what something means. I mean, listen, there's religions out there that have come from, um, you know, there was this treasure that was buried in Ohio. And out of the treasure of this, there was only one person who saw the golden plates that interpreted the holy books. And only, actually, there were three men who saw these holy books. One of them was excommunicated from the church. The other one was killed. And there was only one left to interpret what, what this holy book, these golden plates that came and turned into these holy books, really meant. His name was Joseph Smith, and that's where Mormonism comes from. Anytime you get a leader that claims they're the only ones who saw something, run. Because it's a false religion. Let me juxtapose Christianity and the Christian faith to this. The Bible consists of 66 books written by about 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years, but it creates one consistent story from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation. There is not another book like it in the history of the world, which means there's not one person who holds a key to creating this Bible that we hold or understanding this Bible that we hold. Second, When Jesus was resurrected from the dead, as he predicted he would be, did he show himself to one person? Did he show himself to two people to verify the resurrection? This is what 1 Corinthians 15 says. For what I received, I pass on to you of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So he covers what happened with Jesus and that he appeared, here it is, to Peter, And then he shows up to the 12. This is the dead Jesus who comes back to life. Shows himself to one guy and then to 12. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some who've fallen asleep. This Bible, this story of Jesus and the resurrection is not something that one person saw and experienced and said, I hold the key, let me tell you about it. 500 people. At one occasion, see this resurrected Jesus. Why? Because it was true. It truly happened. The Christian faith is not a secret. It's something that took place in the public eye. I'm going to have to switch away from this because there's two last points here. And we've called this series the Resilient Church. Because I want to make sure we move from the permissive to the resilient and I'm going to go back up to verse, one, uh, verse 18, the first verse of this passage, to show you this. I think the resilient church holds strong to the purity of God's word. 
Verse 18 reads this way, to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write this. These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire. Would you just write the word, if you have a paper Bible right there, just write the word purity in the text. I'm not asking you to add to the Bible, okay? You're just making yourself a note. And whose feet are like burnished bronze. And would you write the word strength right there? You see, fire typically is always the symbol for, for the purity of something. Something is purified by fire. When it says that Jesus, the Son of God, has eyes like burning fire, meaning he sees it all. And what he sees, he desires it to be pure. He wants a church that is pure. He wants a church that teaches the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we're not adding to it foolishness. The bronze feet is always a reference to strength. And I think he's trying to say Jesus himself is strong and he wants his church to be strong. So I, I've just said it like this. The resilient church holds strong to the purity of God's word. As a note of application, don't be intimidated by the Bible. Hold it in strong awe and reverence, but don't be intimidated. Read it. Most of it is understandable and straightforward, and we have access to so much information that can help us understand it. I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to sit at the table with Jesus. Take his word and let it wash over your life so that you might not just have a pure understanding of who God is, but you might live a life of purity before him. The last is this. At the very end of this passage, I'll say it this way. The resilient church rules with Jesus in the end. To the one who is victorious, verse 26, to the one who's victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and dash them to pieces like pottery. That's a reference to Psalm 2. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the church. Um, Here's the one thing that I know about the book of Revelation. Uh, I know a lot about the book of Revelation. Let me just tell you one of those things that came out better. It's about the victory. And it's about the victory that is found in Jesus Christ. In the end, he wins. And there will be a church that joins Jesus. And he says this, the authority that I have, I'm going to rule in the end. And if you want to rule with me, follow me. Have relationship with me. Believe in the pure gospel. Do you remember what his recommendation was already? He said this, I want you to hold on to the thing that you already have. Salvation has been revealed through Jesus Christ. You have it. Hold it. There's not a secret experience or a secret knowledge that is going to save you or help you follow Jesus more. There's this interesting statement about from Psalm 2 where God's people are promised this victory. Um, and it's this crushing of the nations. If there's people that are with Jesus and rule in the end, there are people who are defeated in the end. And I don't think it creates joy for God to destroy his creation. But there's a penalty in the end, and there's a reward in the end. Jesus is saying, I want you in my family. I want you on my side. I will have the victory in the end. And then he says this, I'll give you the morning star. 
Guys, I've read so much on this. Um, no one knows what it means. <laughs> um, the best guess on this is this. In Revelation, I think it's chapter 22, Jesus reveal, refers to himself as the morning star. In the end, I think what he's saying is this. In the end, the morning star that you're going to receive is him. You get Jesus. Not in like, I can't see you kind of way, but the reward of the, the Christian, the victorious one, the one who follows through, who stays with Jesus, is the one who gets Jesus in the end. A full experience in God's kingdom. No longer veiled between a world in heaven and a world here on earth, but in the end, God creates a new heaven and a new earth, and they're together because God's promise is that his life will be with his people. Um, I will, I, I freely admit that uh, <clears throat> there are some things we just do not know about the book of Revelation. But we do know this. It promises victory through Jesus Christ. Uh, I'm over time, <clears throat> but I, I don't want to miss an opportunity to, to say this. After a message like this, you can kind of look around the church and look down your row and be like, wow, scary. Who are the false teachers? I mean, that dude at the end of the row kind of gives me the creeps, right? I mean, we got to go find the false teachers. You want to know who the false teacher is in my life more than anything else? It's me. Because when I want something, I can take the word of God that previously used to be open and given me instruction, and I can kind of hide it under the table and be like, you know what, God, right now at this moment in my life, I want to do what I want to do. And I'm leading myself astray. We celebrated our graduates here a moment ago in the service. And you're like, yeah, your whole life is in front of you. Like, you're going to have, I'm assuming none of them are married. Which means they're going to make choices about who they date. Will they look for the kind of person that is not going to divide the household between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of something else? Oh, oh. Are they actually going to look for people who not just claim to be Christians, but actually walk with Jesus? Or are they going to go, you know, I'm going to date who I want to date. I'm going to marry who I'm going to marry. Or will they allow this to be instructive? Not just accept, oh yeah, they say they go to church. They say they love God. Well, do they demonstrate that? Well, with your finances, do you trust God? You know what, God, really, my finances are my finances. And I put the Bible away and don't allow it to direct my life. Listen, you don't need a false teacher in your life. Often you are the false teacher in your life. And I started with me, right? I'm the false teacher in my life. I want to do something the way I want to do it. And I don't allow God's word to guide me. We all want to be blessed by Jesus, don't we? We want to live a blessed life where we're so close to him. And yet, do we really want his word? And do we want his instruction? Do we want his guidance as much as we want his blessing? Because if you want his blessing more than you want him, we're walking down a false way. We're about to go sideways. Are you and I willing to be the kind of people that will put our faces in God's word and say, God, I don't want to know the false you. I want to know the real you so I can live this life that is truly life. Forgive me if I've come across as harsh this morning. My desire so much is for you to know the real Jesus and not something that is false. I want you to find that life that is truly life so that in the end, you get that life with Jesus and you get life with Jesus today. And if you don't have it, can I just say today's the day, turn to him and say, Jesus, I want you and grow up in him.
Don't be intimidated by this. Dig into it. Learn it. Walk with people who know it. And let's grow together and be the kind of church that no one can lead us astray. Amen? God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your goodness to us. And may we not just take it for granted, God. May we digest this and feast on your word, knowing that you're going to give us victory in you in the end, but you're going to give us life today. Lord, there's hardship and there is suffering in this world, but to do that journey without you would be horrible. God, we, we just lay our lives before you. We know that you can fill our minds with truth and with life, but help us to be disciplined to walk this road with you. And if you want that life, would you simply say amen today?